You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the American Bar Association's annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have two guests. I have Miss Madeline Meacham. Did I pronounce your name right? Madeline. Madeline. Madeline Meacham. Is that part? Okay, yes. I got it now. So, And uh, Mr. Michael Haddad? Correct. Great. So uh, for the purposes of uh, a little bit of background for our listeners, uh, I would like to learn a little bit more about you, so uh, where you work and what you do. And so ladies first, we'll start uh, with Madeline. Well, at this point, I'm in private practice, but for about 30 years, I was a county attorney with Boulder County and did uh, a variety of uh, types of law, including, as is relevant to what we're talking about today, representing the sheriff's department in civil lawsuits. And Michael? I'm a civil rights trial lawyer, and I'm practicing in Oakland with my law partner slash wife. Oh, excellent. Two associates, yes. And I've been doing this for about 25 years. We specialize in civil rights cases, in particular, representing people suing police for misconduct. Gotcha, gotcha. And obviously, that is a a very uh, popular topic in news media today. So let's get into it. Uh, you, uh, You both were presenting an event called Liability for Alleged Police Misconduct, the Legal Landscape after Ferguson, Missouri. So uh, who wants, I'm looking for a volunteer, who wants to give me the 50,000 foot, just general description of the event? Well, we tried to present a roundtable perspective. So we had a plaintiff's lawyer, defense lawyer, the um, former president of black uh, law enforcement executives, and a couple of people who do insurance coverage, talking about all aspects of uh, legal liability for police misconduct. And we we're really focusing on how those areas of practice have been impacted by the attention that uh, issues of police misconduct have been getting over the last year. Okay. Okay. And uh, so liability, you know, I'm hearing uh, if this is tort, I'm guessing, or is this criminal liability, both? This is civil liability. Civil liability. Yes. For liability for violation of constitutional rights by police or other government officials, generally, It's only enforced by private civil attorneys, like civil rights lawyers like myself. Prosecutors enforce criminal law, but in terms of enforcing the constitutional rights for everybody, Congress has delegated that to individuals deemed private attorneys general when their rights are violated, and they bring these these cases generally under federal statutes like 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. And uh, let's get into some of these, uh, some of the grounds for the civil liability. So what are, the, what are the typical types of cases that are being brought forth? A myriad of factual situations. Whenever there's police misconduct, there can often be a case. However, there is a, practically a threshold that it needs to be significant because these cases are difficult and costly to bring. And so certainly my firm looks for a certain threshold of how serious is this violation of rights and how serious were the injuries. But we're looking at things like use of excessive force, unnecessary tasering, false arrests generally if accompanied by other civil rights violations and if they, or if they last for a long enough period of time. And these cases unfortunately can go to life and death situations involving deadly police shootings. So we're talking wrongful death. Wrongful death okay. or other in-custody deaths like positional asphyxia, as was the Eric Garner situation. Okay, so, wow, there's a lot going on in the news media with, uh, with the police and a, little, a lot of civil unrest. And so are we seeing incidents like this rising? 
Is that is that what's going on? Is the tide coming in here? Are we seeing more of it? Or we no, just... I think that the public is just becoming more aware because of the high-profile cases, don't you think, Michael? Yeah, I agree with that. I think, actually, this has always been happening, and it's becoming more visible because of the prevalence of new technology and video. And um, that's why we're seeing it more. Okay. So when these, these civil suits come up, uh, are we going after the police departments, the city, the individual officers? Uh, how does that work? Well, generally, when we bring a civil rights case, we tend to file it in federal court with both state and federal claims, and we sue the individual officers, and we often sue their department, sometimes their chief of police or sheriff. And at least in California, whenever there's liability against the officer for something done in the course of his job, it's paid for by the city or their insurance company. So they're being indemnified, at least at a financial level. Financially. And that's not the case necessarily in Colorado. So we see lawsuits that usually include both the officer and the municipality. The grounds for liability are very different, though. The municipality can only be liable if the complained of act is a result of a policy or a procedure of the municipality. So if you have an officer who is truly acting as a rogue officer, then the municipality won't be liable. In most of these cases, though, the officers are acting pursuant to policy, and they're making those split-second judgments. Um, and then after the fact, the courts are asked to review whether those those uh, judgments or those actions were reasonable in the light of all the circumstances. So that's for the municipality, correct? So that's the threshold for municipality liability? The, well, the threshold for whether there's been a constitutional injury is whether the actions were reasonable or not. If the actions were reasonable it doesn't rise to the level of a constitutional violation. Okay. If they were unreasonable, the individual lawyer may be, excuse me, the individual officer may be liable, but the municipality can be liable if the officer's actions were uh, a result of that policy. So, for example, in Ferguson, there was a basically, a, I guess it wasn't a policy, I guess it was a procedure which encouraged officers to go out and make a lot of arrests for relatively minor crimes in order to generate revenue for Ferguson. And that's the kind of policy that can result in municipal liability. Okay. And then walk me through this. Where does an officer become liable here? So for, for the same example you just used, where would an officer fall under, uh, fall under scrutiny there? Well, both the municipality and the officer could be liable in a case like that. Okay. So is uh, this is just me asking the question. It's very fascinating to me. Uh, so it, se- it sounds like, from what I'm hearing, it's actually easier to bring a case uh, and succeed civilly against the officer than it is the municipality. I, I think I would, so. I would say that's true because you have to prove the added thing that it wasn't just one rogue officer. You'd have to show that there was some systemic failure, maybe systemically poor training that rose to the level of deliberate indifference to the the rights of the public, or a custom, or an official policy by the city or county that was the moving force behind the violation of rights by the officer. That's what you need to show municipal liability. Okay, so um, officers being liable. So different states, there's different indemnification. So, um, So compared to other jurisdictions, Colorado does not have as much protection for the officers? Well, If it's determined that the officer is acting within the scope of his duties, then 
we have a governmental liability act which does require indemnification but if for example there was a a, a state law claim for assault which you might see arising out of some of these cases that have been publicized that would not be within the scope of the governmental immunity act because it's an intentional tort okay so th- there has to be malicious intent behind certain actions that uh, fall outside the scope of their duties in order for them to be personally held liable? Well, not malicious intent as a, as a term of art, but yes, there does have to be some kind of an intent. Okay, so I guess I'm, I'm curious about this because, uh, you know, we do, uh, we do hire and, and train police officers to enforce the very laws that we vote on. And so this is a, a consent, uh, consent enforcement, uh, but mistakes. You know, uh, mistakes for, you know, committed by police officers that are misconstrued. Um, you know, they could be negligence and they may, you know, be interpreted to fall outside their duty. I guess I'm worried about an officer that means well, makes a mistake, and then all of a sudden is liable for serving these very communities, liable to his community for serving his community. So I want to get some comments on that. I, I, you guys are looking at me and I want to say something clearly. So uh, I guess uh, who, who wants to volunteer first? Officers are not liable for serving their communities. They're liable for violating constitutional rights and injuring peace, people in the process. So already there is a strong immunity called qualified immunity, which the Sur- Supreme Court created that protects officers who make reasonable mistakes. And it says officers can really only be liable for federal constitutional violations where they violate clearly established law. Sometimes that's been described as only the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. Can you give me an example of the laws? That might help me a little bit with uh, just kind of wrapping my mind around it. So what kind of laws would they be violating? Well, they'd be violating the Fourth Amendment against the use of excessive force, which has been fully fleshed out in case law. And generally, officers are not, not allowed to use force that's unnecessary under the circumstances. That's described as objectively unreasonable under the circumstances. And so, you know, we give these officers the awesome power to use force, sometimes deadly force. And from a civil perspective, it's not too much to hold them accountable if they step over the line and injure someone while, vi- while violating their rights. So I could see those calls going either way, you know, I think, it, and based on the facts and then based on, you know, people's interpretations, perceptions of the situation, mistaken percep- uh, perceptions by the officer, it does kind of scare me a little bit there that, uh, you know, you start thinking about excessive force, well, by whose standard, you know, and, uh, and these are just questions that the community has and like, how do we know? And people make mistakes. Yeah. So you know, do, doc, doctors make mistakes. Bus drivers make mistakes. Drivers make mistakes. We hold everybody else accountable. And when officers have this life and death power given to them, it's necessary that they also be held accountable to make sure that that power is exercised according to proper training and proper standards. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I do think there's a difference between, you know, the police force and a doctor. I mean, you know, you've got a lot, I mean, doctors carry insurance and they're required in, I think, every state to carry a certain level of malpractice to cover their mistakes. And of course, you know, there's definitely ways to attack a doctor's estate, you know, uh, beyond a certain point. But, you know, these are, these are the people that we, you know, have all agreed on to protect us. And so, and I am playing devil's advocate here. I know everybody's looking at me, you know, but, uh, but I am playing devil's advocate here. But we, we do, we have these people, we hire them to protect us. And so, and they are people. And so they do make mistakes. And so um, I guess, I guess that's my question there. You know, how interpretive is this? Uh, you know, are you seeing 
cases that are bad, I mean, where you really think that the officer meant well, but man, he just messed up or she just messed up. And, and now that, now that I think there, is there a place where you think they're overly liable for a mistake committed? The courts have the power to weed out those cases where officers make reasonable mistakes. Okay. Really, the only cases that are allowed to proceed beyond an initial motion to dismiss or summary judgment motion are those cases where officers violate the law in a way that's not reasonable. That's an unreasonable mistake where they should have known better. And that's the system that we're operating under here. Okay. Well, and I think that that is the way the system is supposed to work. But I personally have had experience where... I think that, well, I know that ultimately the court found that an officer's actions were reasonable, but to reach that point, he had to negate a jury verdict on behalf of a plaintiff. It was a case involving a police officer who responded to a domestic violence call, knocked on the door, and was confronted by a man who had a a, a raised shotgun. He shot him and killed him. It later turned out that the man was very drunk and that the gun wasn't loaded. Our position was that the officer couldn't know that. And when confronted with a weapon pointed at you, it was an appropriate use of force. Um, It went to trial and the jury came back with a plaintiff's verdict. Why did that happen? Personally, I think it was because the judge let the four-year-old son of the victim testify and talk about how much he missed his dad. And he let it go to the jury. The jury came back with a plaintiff's verdict. He set aside the verdict. So ultimately, the result in that case, I think, was the right result. But it does show you that I think officers can be at risk when their actions are reviewed uh, with 2020 hindsight. Okay. Well, because we're at ABA Annual, and this is a wonderful place to exchange uh, thought leadership and come up with ideas going into the next year of lawmaking and law evolution. So what, uh, what were some of the goals here at uh, ABA Annual for, for you? I think that uh, my goal in picking this topic and presenting this panel was to try to give people a better sense of the of both perspectives or of all perspectives that are at play here. Because what you see in the media tends to be pretty um, inflammatory. And very often people don't understand the result because they don't understand the legal principles that are at play. For example, what does reasonable force mean? So it was an attempt to educate people about why things work the way they do. And I was just invited as a speaker, as someone speaking from the point of view of a civil rights trial lawyer on behalf of plaintiffs. So I I wanted to try to share with the group my perspective in that role and uh, try to express some of the difficulties of holding police accountable and yet the importance of holding police accountable. So I have one more question for you, and, and you can uh, feel free to say no comment. Uh, you know, given the light of media coverage of, of a lot of these uh, issues with the police, the civil, uh, the, uh, the civil unrest, do you think the media, and I'm a big First Amendment supporter, do you think the media is being socially responsible in the way that they cover these events? Absolutely, because ultimately the police are public officials being paid to enforce our public laws under the highest law of the land. And where there's video that shows police apparently stepping way over that line, it's really important for the public to be aware of that. Because lawmakers need to know about it, members of the public need to be able to put pressure on lawmakers to make corrections where necessary, 
And it's just really important to know what our public officers are really doing. If they are stepping over the line in a way that makes everybody upset in a public way, hey, let's change their training or let's look at it or let's look at their supervision. Because in my experience over 25 years, these incidents have always been happening. We're just seeing them more now because there's more video out there. Okay. And uh, Ms. Meacham? In that sense, I agree that, that the media is appropriately reporting incidents of this kind. I just wish, as I always wish with the media, that they could go a little bit deeper into the story and provide some background information so that people could put these incidents in, in context. So, for example, they, the media has consistently reported when criminal charges haven't been filed as a result of a police shooting. I don't think I have ever heard them discuss as part of that story what the standard is for criminal prosecution as opposed to just discipline on the job or a civil case. And it's very different. Well, we've definitely reached the end of our program for today, but I want to thank both of you for joining us. And if our listeners wish to follow up with you, learn a little bit more about what we've discussed today, how can they reach you? They can reach me through my law firm's website, which is www.haddadandsherwin, H-A-D-D-A-D-A-N-D-S-H-E-R-W-I-N, or also through the National Police Accountability Project, which I'm the president of. There's 500 civil rights lawyers. You can also find a lawyer through there. You can find us at npapjustice.org. Ms. Beecham. And I would say for uh, people who want to reach out to me, best bet is my email, which is mmeacham, M-M-E-A-C-H-A-M, at halpern, H-A-L-P-E-R-N-L-L-C.com. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.